Hey everyone, welcome to Chicago's Paranormal Panel. Um, as you can see, we're not doing this in a normal panel format. Uh, basically, right. basically, Patrick decided that he doesn't want to be in a room with me anymore, and so we're doing it virtually. Um, <laughs> I'm your moderator for this panel. I'm Nick Mataragas, uh, the producer of Freak of the Week, aka Mr. Freak of the Week, uh, also the executive uh, director of Memorium Development, and I believe I'm still the only skeptic to ever be a guest on the Ghostly Podcast. Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to introduce our, our panelists today, uh, starting with Rebecca Rivers, who is right underneath of me. If you, if uh, it's lined up differently on your guys' screen, she's the one with the red hair. Uh, there you go. Yes. And I'll just read her description here. Rebecca is a co-host and the resident believer of Ghostly Podcast. She has been interested in the paranormal and all things spooky since childhood. Rebecca is also the host of the Walking Dead podcast on the DVMPE network mm. and can be heard on multiple Memoriam Development podcasts, including Freak of the Week and Mr. Wiggly's Moist and Happy Friendship Garden. Rebecca received her master's degree in English literature because she's fancy uh, from DePaul <laughs> University and works as a career counselor. Hey, Rebecca. Hi. Did I miss anything? You did not miss anything. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Rebecca is also the person that I think gets annoyed by me more than anyone else when it comes to productions. So I think that's uh, true. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty sure. Also, when we play poker. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We don't do stuff like that. That's illegal. We're not friends outside of this at all. I don't know any of these people. Next up is the gentleman with the vest and all of the buttons, which is Mr. Bob Anderson. Oh, hey there, everybody. Bob is the host of the paranormal podcast, Bob After Dark. He has been a paranormal enthusiast since he was a wee lad. Bob has dabbled in many aspects of the spooky world from both research and investigations. Bob is sort of a Swiss army knife in the occult world, knowing a bit about not only ghostly hauntings, but cryptozoology and demonology. Bob also helps people with any sort of paranormal phenomena that they may be experiencing. He's also apparently obsessed with a leprechaun in Mobile, Alabama. (laughs) I didn't write that on my bio. Oh, did I forget? I think I added that. Sorry. How's it going, Bob? Oh, hey there, everybody. Happy pandemic. Wow. Wow. Thanks. Yeah. Started on a happy note. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, Happy. We're all together. That's the important thing. All together. That's true. Yes. All right. Next up is the gentleman uh, with the beard and the hair that isn't drinking a Diet Coke. Uh, That would be Steve Michaels. Steve Michaels is a professional wrestler based out of Chicago. He wrestles for multiple promotions across the United States and can currently be seen on the national TV show OVW Wrestling on U2 America every Friday night. In his spare time, Steve is a regular co-host of Bob After Dark and has 15 years of paranormal investigation experience. Steve is also a co-founder of the Midwest Paranormal Research Society, where his primary role is as a member of their tech team and evidence analyst analysis. Sorry. Um, also, um, Steve even though he's part of Bob after dark does not get his name in the, the title of the show for some reason. Yeah, no, I've, I've been lobbying <laughs> at for quite some time and let, let's be honest. It, it should be Bob and Steve or at least Steve and Bob after dark. I, I think Steve whatever and Bob. That's, Thanks. That's a, uh, that's another, that's a whole new panel. Like, I think you just changed the name of the show to you tell him Steve Bob and people will totally flock to that. <laughs> See, I, I originally pitched the Steve and Bob fun time experience, but it just didn't take off. What? No, you never pitched that. You I should have. see. He doesn't even remember. <laughs> oh, geez. ridiculous! He's big wow. league now. Always big league in me. Always big league in. All right. Next up is the one that looks like Eddie Vedder, kind of. Uh, that would Wait, be who? 
Yes, you, <laughs> Patrick Harrington. Pat is one half, or if you intro Rebecca first, the other half. I added that in just because I don't take directions well. Of Ghostly and the Walking Dead podcast on the DVMPE network. While Patrick is a known skeptic, he is a he has a love for everything spooky. He promises to behave today. You can find Pat on almost all Memoriam Development podcasts or heckling slash watching the live streams of Bob After Dark when he's not behind the microphone. He's also the one with the background right now. I have a background. Yeah, well, I mean, I thought like ghostly background and I didn't think you were actually going to have one. And I would like to say that you guys look great for being in quarantine, whereas I look like some (laughs) kind of homeless person applying for a job. Yeah, well, that's normal for you, though. It is. It is kind of normal. This is my normal look. Yeah. I think you look lovely, Pat. Oh, thank I, you. Thank I you looked. Lovely. I looked exactly like that, and then I took a shower, and now I look decent. Oh. Are you saying that Pat doesn't shower? Hey, I didn't say that. Don't put words in my mouth, Bob. <laughs> I would say it. I mean, I've showered at least twice during this quarantine. That's 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 a record for you. Uh, it is. Job. It is. I'm trying to be cleaner. You know. <laughs> All right. We do have one more person to introduce, um, and that's uh, the lovely Ursula. Ursula, I'm going to pronounce your last name wrong, I'm sure. Is, is it Bielski? That is the popular pronunciation. It's uh, We pronounce it Bielski in my family, but I think it probably should be Bielski. So Actually, I would have said than most people too. So. I would have said Bielski, but before you got on, everybody else was like, oh, it's Bielski. Now, now they should feel bad. I yes. feel fine. I feel bad. I didn't say anything. It was Bob. Bob said uh, that. I didn't say anything. Oh, it was me. It was me. It was Rebecca. So Ursula Bielski is the founder of the of Chicago Hauntings Incorporated, the leader of their the, their great uh, their Chicago Ghost Tour team, and the host of PBS The Haunting of Chicago on WYCC. A historian, author, and parapsychologist, she has been writing and lecturing about Chicago's supernatural folklore and the paranormal for almost three decades and is recognized as the leading authority on the Chicago region's ghost lore and cemetery history. Ursula is the author of 12 popular and critically acclaimed books on the same subjects, including the Chicago Haunt series and Graveyards of Chicago. Ursula has been on a ton of TV shows, including Ghost Adventures, hey, me too, and, and The Maury Show. Uh, not not a baby daddy episode though. <laughs> also edits children's books on the paranormal for for Bearport, Bearport Publishing in New York and teaches courses in paranormal studies for Chicago's Harper College. Ursula received her bachelor's degree in history from Benedictine University and a master's in American cultural and intellectual history from Northeastern Illinois University. So she also has a master's degree. Sorry, Rebecca. It's okay. I got two, but I mean, whatever. I didn't oh, miss oh, oh. That's okay. So, Ursula, did I miss anything in that very long introduction? No, that was so nice. Thank you. Oh, I didn't write it. They just gave it to me to say. <laughs> well, thank you for saying all that. Oh, you're welcome. Nobody trusts me to write stuff myself for some reason. <laughs> so... Uh, we're going to get started in a second, but I just want to lay out kind of to our viewers what uh, the panel is going to, how the panel is going to work. So what's going to happen is each of our, our panelists here has decided on a ghost story from the Chicagoland area that they're going to tell. Um, after they tell the story, our other panelists will probably rip into them for some reason or other um, or add to it. Um, mostly rip into Pat because he's a skeptic and... What? You know, he lets himself get targeted <laughs> for some reason. And then after the stories are over, whatever time we have left on this panel, we're going to take questions from you guys, the audience. So uh, we're going to go ahead and start off um, with our stories. You guys ready for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah, just so, so our first story is about a very famous skyscraper. Um, and uh, Ursula, this is your story, so I'll let you kind of introduce it. 
This is one of my very favorite Chicago ghost stories. It's, uh, you know, a ghost story about a building in the city that invented the skyscraper. And so we have so many buildings in Chicago that are famous the world over. But aside from the, the Willis Tower, which we always call the Sears Tower, of course. I would Big say world. this is an, an even more famous building and more recognizable building as identified with Chicago. The Hancock Center, which was completed in 1970, is it sits right at the north end of the Magnificent Mile, Michigan Avenue, right near Oak Street, the Oak Street Beach. And it's that massive black trapezoidal structure with the diamonds or X's up the side. Mm -hmm. And if you walk or drive by it, I mean, it, it is really imposing. And I always feel like the Hancock building has this. Someone, someone wrote, I think it's, uh, Carl Sandberg said, the great Chicago poet said, the skyscraper has a soul. You really feel that about the Hancock building. It's just this massive looming thing. Well, the Hancock building has a lot of legends associated with it that are uh, connected to the paranormal. Probably the oldest one is connected to the land itself. It's situated in Streeterville, um, and this was an area that was originally known as the sand, Sands. It was actually a sandbar uh, way back when, uh, before that area was filled in around and became Lakeshore Drive. And the area of Streeterville has always been known as cursed in Chicago, going back to Cap Streeter, the namesake. Now, Cap Streeter was this ragtag old sea captain who made money doing a lot of different odd jobs. Jobs and he was really eccentric. And one of the things that he did was to ferry people back and forth between Chicago and Milwaukee on this rundown old boat that he and his wife owned. So one day they had taken a boatload of people up to Milwaukee and there was a big storm that broke out over Lake Michigan. So they didn't have a lot of people to come back with them. So they basically came back on their own and the storm was so bad, they, the boat was broken on the shore of Lake Michigan, right around where the Hancock Center is. So since they no longer had a boat to make money with, Cap decided he'd have to find something else to do. So he decided to stake a claim to the lakefront property where they'd washed up on, and he started to sell parcels of it to people. Well, of course, the city council wasn't too thrilled about this. And so this big struggle between Cap and the city of Chicago over this land went on for years and years. And because of that struggle on his deathbed, according to legend, which can't be substantiated, Cap Streeter cursed all of that area, which is Streeterville and, uh, you know, Magnificent Mile, claiming that no one would ever be able to live peacefully on it again. So that's the old curse. Now, in modern times, since the Hancock building was built, there have been many strange stories surrounding it. Many people share this legend that the... Hancock building was the inspiration for the script for Ghostbusters. And now I have one of my first boyfriends was a comedian, Kevin Dorf. And so I was kind of like involved in the comedy scene back in the 80s and 90s in Chicago. And I heard a story in that crowd that while Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis were writing a script for Ghostbusters, they were visiting John Belushi, who was living in the Hancock at the time. And he told them about the str many strange things 
that were going on in the building. And they incorporated this idea of this skyscraper that's a portal for paranormal power into the script of Ghostbusters. So that's the story. I don't know if it's true, but that's the story that I heard, um, you know, running around the comedy gang here in Chicago. So the Hancock building, uh, the stories that John Belushi shared would certainly have been the stories of the strange deaths and accidents and uh, other strange events that have gone on the building since almost it was completed. The first strange death that happened, which is the most famous one, was the death of Lorraine Kowalski. She was a 29-year-old girl who was dating a Chicago businessman who lived in the building. He lived on the 90th floor. He claimed that she came into his apartment at about three o'clock in the morning. She had been drinking and she was angry about something. Neighbors said they heard them arguing. He, she was in the bedroom. He went into the bathroom to get uh, go to the bathroom and he heard this big crash from the bedroom. When he came back into the bedroom, the rain was gone. Her clothes and her purse were thrown all over the room and she had gone through the bedroom window and ended up on the pavement 90 floors down. Mm. Well, this was very odd because this Lorraine weighed about 125 pounds. And when they talked to the structural engineer who was the field engineer at the building, was a permanent position there. Fazler Khan was the structural engineer of the building, famous Chicago architect from Skidmore, Orms, Merrill. But the field engineer on site said there was no possible way this could have happened. This was about a 52 inch square window. It was a double plate glass window. Each pane, two of them, uh, were a quarter inch thick and they were built, the, the windows were built to withstand two, uh, I'm sorry, 80 pounds of force per square foot. And it was a, a weight time, uh, times 2.5. So literally 200 square pounds of force per square foot of a window. These windows had been tested and, that, and had withstood 150 mile an hour winds. When they were building the building, there were incidents where construction workers fell and went and, and hit panels of these windows that were lying flat and didn't break them. This, the, of course, the boyfriend was, you know, he went on trial for manslaughter, murder, whatever. And the Cook County coroner said that it was an accident, even though there was no way that they could actually determine this. And it's still a case that a lot of detectives in Chicago are still looking into. In 1976, uh, four to 76, there were five other accidents like this where people who couldn't possibly muster up this kind of energy broke through these windows. Two of the most famous ones happened in 1976. The first one happened when a uh, technician for Channel 44, WSMS at the time, television uh, station Chicago at that time, um, he committed suicide. He took a steel hammer and, and bashed a hole in the window and jumped out of the window. Everyone said there was nothing wrong with him. They claimed there was no motivation for him to do this. He was very happy. He was talking and chatting with people all day. And yet he accomplished this. Again, 
even though he used a hammer, the field engineer said there was no way he could have done this. Just one person do this, even using an instrument like that. Later that year, there was a young man that was living with his father in the building. And he was a sociology student. I believe it was at the University of Illinois. And he was he liked to sit in the uh, on the ledge near one of the windows in the dining room and study, read in the morning. And his father was getting ready for work, heard this crash in the dining room. There was nothing wrong with this kid. He had no issues and went through the window. Uh, they found that the latch on the window had been broken. So the accidents, the death, and there's been other things that happened. Very famously, the comedian Chris Farley was living in the building when he was found dead, probably of a drug overdose. Uh, in 2002, three people died when scaffolding fell from the building, uh, crushing people in their cars that were uh, stopped at, at the light in front of the building. So accidents, deaths, things like this associated with the building. Okay, second thing, they say that there is a colony of spiders, uh, these brown raccoon spiders that makes its way up one side of the building and down the other side of the building each year. It makes the trip once, uh, they make the trip once a year and no one can apparently explain why they do this or where they came from and why they do this. A third weird thing about the building, the connection to Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan. Anton LaVey, as most people know, uh, lived in San Francisco. That's where he lived most of his adult life. But he was born in Chicago. And as you all know, he was a showman, you know, very, very uh, extravagant person, very fabulous person. And even though a lot of people make fun of him, you know, kind of larger than life, kind of how some people think of him as like a clownish person, he had a lot of really interesting ideas. And he wrote a, a book of essays called The Devil's Notebook. And one of the essays was about architecture. And he talked about, uh, it was very Lovecraftian ideas that he had about modern architecture. And he felt that buildings that weren't built with right angles could have detrimental effects on the people that live in them so that people could be compelled to do things they wouldn't normally do if they lived in buildings that didn't have right angles, rooms that didn't have right angles or worked in offices that didn't have right angles. He also believed that the trapezoidal shape, and he mentioned the Hancock building as an example, that the trapezoidal shape uh, goes way back in arcane folklore and that the trapezoid serves as a gateway for paranormal forces. When he saw the plans for the Hancock building, LeVay was seriously concerned that the building was going to serve as, just like Ghostbusters, mm. a doorway for supernatural, powerful forces to enter the city of Chicago, and also to wreak havoc on the people living and working in this building. Now, Anton LaVey also claimed that he was born on the site where the Hancock was later built. That's not true. Of course, most of the stuff he said, you had to take with a grain of salt. He said also all kinds of things that weren't true. But he claimed that he was built on the site. Uh, he was actually built, uh, I'm sorry, born in, on the site. He was actually born in a hospital on the west side of Chicago. But he liked that 
connection to the Hancock building, that powerful sort of uh, that force in the, in the building and the architecture. I'll tell you something weird, really weird about this story. <laughs> More weird? Okay. Even weirder. <laughs> when I was in college, I was invited to a debutante ball at this old club that was established in 1914 that's right next to the Hancock building in Delaware Place. It's called the Casino Club. It's just a one-story building there. Most people don't even realize it's there. It's one of the most exclusive clubs in Chicago even today. So I went to this debutante ball, and um, there was carpeting down over the floor in the main ballroom. And I had not started writing yet, but I was already starting to investigate the paranormal. And I struck up struck up a conversation with the bar one of the bartenders there that night, and he told me that that when they had events like this, oftentimes they would cover up the ballroom floor because there's a pentagram on the ballroom floor. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but I thought it was an interesting coincidence um, with the Hancock building right next door, that connection that Anton LaVey, uh, or the, the uh, you know, the connection to Anton LaVey at the, at the Hancock building. The final thing about the Hancock building, everyone knows about the curse of the poltergeist films, right? Oh, yeah. 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 All the people that had all these terrible things happen to them. Little Heather O'Rourke, of course, who died after filming the third installment of the franchise. Um, his sister, can't remember her name now, uh, but the girl who played the high school girl in the first movie was strangled. Diana, Diane. I wouldn't say it was Diana or Diana yeah, or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. She was strangled by her boyfriend, other people had illnesses, all sorts of things, right? So we were giving a ghost tour probably about five years ago, and it was a group of seniors from Kenosha, and it was a lunch tour. So we did a, a bunch of the ghost tour, and then we went up to the Fireside restaurant on Ravenswood Avenue across from the Rose Hill Cemetery to, to have lunch. So I was just sitting, they were all having lunch in the banquet area. And then uh, I was sitting in the bar area waiting for them to finish. And you have to walk through the bar to go to the restroom. And this gentleman came through to go to the restroom during lunch and he stopped to talk to me. And he said, thank you so much. This tour is really interesting. He said, I was never really interested in the paranormal until my granddaughter passed away. And I thought, oh, it's, you know, it's really sad. And I figured that maybe he had a, an experience with the granddaughter after death, or maybe he was more curious about the afterlife because of his, you know, sorrow about his granddaughter. And then the next thing he said was, my granddaughter was the little girl in the Poltergeist movie. Oh, no. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. oh, my gosh. And I was like, Sit down here right now. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. And he said, I said, you know all the stories about, you know, the curse of the film and everything. And he said, it was like they say. When she would work on the films, it was like she would get sicker. Hmm. And then when she would stop filming and get away from it, she was okay again. And he said... Uh, it was after 
she wasn't going to do the third film because she had been really ill and then she was feeling better. So her parents agreed to let her do the film. And after the, the filming was over, that was it. She passed away. And as you probably know, if you've seen the film, it was filmed largely in the John Hancock building. Mm-hmm. So um, I talked to him for a little bit and he didn't seem, you know, he didn't seem really against the possible idea that there was some energy in the building that for one of a, a nicer turn finished her off, you know? <sighs> so final thing on another lunch tour, I had a group of uh, architects actually on the tour and several structural engineers. And during the lunch, one of the engineers told me, we've always known there was something seriously wrong with the Hancock building. He said a number of engineers, including himself, believe that the thing that's wrong with the building is, uh, you know, a skyscraper has to have a certain amount of sway built into the building so it doesn't break in the wind. And because of, he said, because of those girders crossed up the side of the building, and then its situation at that very windy place, right at that bend, where it's, I mean, it's just like head on by Lake Michigan winds constantly. He said their theory is that because of the lack of sway and the high winds, it creates this vacuum effect and people have been literally sucked out of the building. Wow. Yeah. That's. <clears throat> wow. Um, yeah. And that's all I got. That's all. That's all. That's great. Yeah. So um, what I got out of that was that the building is infested with spiders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all I remember. <laughs> you couldn't think past the burn. <laughs> I should have probably saved that to the end. <laughs> oh no, I just I I really don't like spiders, so that was the part that stuck with me. Um, do any of you guys have anything to add about the Hancock building? There's a couple of YouTube questions. I put them in the chat for us. Yeah, I oh. saw that. I was going to go to those at the end since they weren't about the Hancock building specifically. Okay, yeah, we could do yeah. that. Yeah, I figure we'll get to the questions at the end uh, that don't relate to the actual stories. But yes, I, I've seen those and they will be addressed. Uh, I, uh, I want to hear what uh, Bob just, has to say about this. <laughs> I have three things. One, I have severe arachnophobia. And... <laughs> I, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing I'm hearing all these great stories and I'm like, man, I didn't know a lot of that. And it's like, man, I'm going to go do an investigation of the Hancock. And I heard about the spiders and absolutely not. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Joking I aside, know. I wanted to point out the Ghostbusters lore stuff because I had no idea. But the parallels you were talking about with sacred geometry and you know, Temple of Gozer and how you had like the yeah. the shapes bring in the paranormal stuff, I I was blown away because I'm a massive Ghostbusters fan, same yeah. as Steve, and I never heard of that before. That had a tie with yeah. the Hancock. The last thing I wanted to point out was kudos to you on asking the bartender about paranormal experiences because that's how I begin every one of my paranormal things when I'm out traveling for conventions and stuff. They know everything. I will stop off at a bar and that's how I start most of them. I'll sit down, I'll have one beer and I'll be like, Hey, uh, I'm here for a conference. I'm talking about that. I'm like those guys you see on TV that, you know, do the ghost stuff. 
where's all the haunted spots? And they'll sit down and they'll tell you. Most of the time, they'll tell you the bar is haunted, but the uh, they'll <laughs> they'll tell you all the local stuff. So kudos to you on the uh, picking the bartender's brain. Um, that place was really interesting. Good job on that, Ursula. I didn't yeah. know half of that. I, I want to, I, I really got to say this quickly. Um, when I first really started getting into like Chicago area hauntings and things like that, those stories are some of the stories that actually really got me hooked on like the, the Chicago area hauntings and curses. Yeah. Um, because I mean, everyone knows a, a lot of the more famous stories, but not everyone knows the stuff that's gone on at the Hancock and, especially the story of, of the woman uh, who fell through the window that physics say shouldn't happen, right. you know? Um, so it was really cool to, to, to hear those stories and to, to have the general public now just be known, have this known because it, it's, it's definitely some really bizarre stuff that's going on there. Is. Yeah. I have one question for you, Ursula. Um, I've heard that there's some Chris Farley stories from um, the Hancock building of him, of him haunting the Hancock. Have you heard really? anything about that? Yeah. I haven't. Because he lived in and died there. Yeah. So. Right. He was found in his apartment. I, yeah. I was just curious if you had what heard What are the anything. stories you've heard? Anything in particular? Like seeing him or... Just like a ghost in a drunken stupor kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like spirits. Yeah, spirits. Ghost with veins popping out of his neck. (laughs) Probably, yeah. Chippendales outfit. Yeah. Yeah. Down by the river. (laughs) All right. Wow, that's really. Which actually, I I just listened to an interview with the guy from Better Call Saul. He wrote that. uh, Bob Odenkirk. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, Yeah, he was a writer for SNL for a while. Um. If no one has anything else about the Hancock building, oh, Bob, do you have something? I was going to ask Ursula a question about the design of the building itself. Uh, Do you think that the design of the building itself and because it's shaped the way it is, and I know we were talking a little bit about the trapezoids and stuff, do you think that really bars into the sacred geometry of the building and probably why there's a lot of energy that goes on there? I really do. I really do. I mean, when you just, it, it just seems to me, why else? You know, there's so many other skyscrapers in Chicago, that building and the other one is Marina City. You know, it's those. Those are the two places. And, you know, what's weird about them? Yeah, the design. You know, it's I really do think it makes a huge difference. Marina City, the apartments are in they're pie shaped. So when you walk in, I don't know if you've ever been in, if anyone's ever been in an apartment in Marina City. Uh, my first publisher had an apartment there. And you walk in, and it's really claustrophobic. And it's like the little kitchen, and there's a bathroom to the side. And then it goes, it opens up. So it's like you walk into the tip of the piece of pie, and it opens up. And, you know, and it's another, another suicide murders, deaths, crazy things going no on. No right Most angles. In the East Tower. What's that? <laughs> no right angles. Right. right? You exactly. were talking about the right angles. Yeah. yeah. And it's almost like when you walk in, you feel very claustrophobic. And, you know, it's not really a big stretch in my mind. I think if for you to, to feel really weird there mm-hmm. and then also be drawn to that open expanse on the balcony. Of the apartment. Oh, yeah. Thank you. You know, so you know. Yeah, that's wild. And now I have to 
question my own taste because they're two of my favorite buildings in the city are the Hancock <laughs> and the Marina City. And they probably um, have a lot of spiders too. Right. Oh, I, will, I will say um, as we move on here that if you've never been to the Hancock building, you should visit it. It has the yes. best view in the city Absolutely. by far. And it, even though they're changing the name, it's still much like the Sears Tower will always be the Hancock building. <laughs> yes. Definitely. All right. We're going to move on. Um, Patrick, you're next. You're going to be talking about St. James at Sag Bridge, the maybe the yes. longest, weirdest title I've been given. <laughs> uh, well, it's not it's not that odd. Um, but OK, so I'm sure that you guys can tell, but I am a Southsider. I know, right? I mean, front room. pretty obvious. I don't like it at all. <laughs> oh, really? Front room pad. Yeah, front room pad. Milk. But Milk. That means, yeah. <laughs> that means that I grew up knowing two stories better than anything. I knew of <laughs> Resurrection Mary and I knew of Monk's Castle. They were legendary stories on the schoolyard when I was a kid. And back then, all boys lied to each other. I don't know if they still do. I, I'm not in touch with the really young generation. But everyone, including me, would tell a story about being there and that the monks chased them away or beat them up or something. And I had literally no idea (laughs) that these stories took place only a couple of miles from each other, all on the same haunted road, Archer Avenue. Another story that always came up on the playground was Batcher's Grove. And that wasn't far away, but that's not Archer Avenue. But as soon as I got my driver's license, uh, it became my nightly drive. I would drive to Batcher's Grove, and then I would drive by Monk's Castle and take Archer all the way down to see if Mary was out. And spoiler alert, she never was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It wasn't until one day that a friend asked me if I wanted to sneak into Monk's Castle, which is um, St. James at Sag Bridge. Uh, Man, I was so scared to do this. But I couldn't let on to my friend and be known as a chicken or anything. So I snuck in. And uh, we ended up making so much noise at one point that they flipped the lights on and someone started coming out of the building on the top of the hill. Me and my friends, we panic ran all the way back to the car. And it was actually pretty far away from the entrance. So through the years, St. James has always stuck out to me. And I did a lot of research to find out everything that I could about that place. So um, for those that know me, they know that I'm all about the history. So I'm going to do a quick little history before the actual ghost story, if you guys don't mind. Uh, Trust me, it's going to be worth it. So the location where St. James sits actually has been inhabited for a very long time. This used to be a home to several Native American tribes, and after that, it was a French fort, not a French room. Totally different. (laughs) Southside humor, Pat. Yeah, right? (laughs) Now, I always thought, why was there a French fort on Archer Avenue? It just never made sense to me. But the answer to this is because when Father Marquette and Louis Joliet surveyed the area, they realized the full potential of this exact location. Uh, Ultimately, they were searching for a way to link the Mississippi River, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Great Lakes, because this would allow the French to have a clear passage through what would become the United States and give them control over much of the content, or continent, excuse me. It was very strategic, and even though plans were made, nothing really came of them. 
In fact, it wasn't until 1836 that any construction actually started on what would become the I&M Canal. This canal is really what put Chicago on the map as it was the center of everything. You see, boats would travel from the Gulf of Mexico or the St. Lawrence River in Ontario, and the midway point between these locations is Chicago. So most of the work that was done creating the I&M Canal was done by Irish immigrants, and that's what brought all the Irish population into the Chicagoland area. Uh, working on the I&M Canal was considered to be a very dangerous job. We're not exactly sure how many people died making the canal, but there was a ton. There was a lot of people that, that died during that time. And uh, during this time period is when St. James was founded. It gave the immigrants a place to worship. So now you guys ready for the spooky stuff? Yes. Yeah. You did a good job on the history part, though. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that a lot. Oh, more so than my usual history? Oh, that was good. No, I was, that was great. Oh, okay. I didn't know okay. a lot of that, so that's amazing. I, I actually oh, knew yeah. most of that, but I work as a tour guide, so. <laughs> okay. Uh, really, there, there was no, like, ghost stories surrounding St. James until about 1897 or 1898. And uh, what started one of the most haunted streets in all the world is when nine Native American skeletons were unearthed, confirming that this area is an Indian burial ground. Uh, People demanded that the Native American skeletons be returned to the ground, but that couldn't be done because some were sent to the Field Museum already. So this is just one of the stories from 1897, and it even appeared in the Chicago Tribune. So we have two musicians, Professor William Looney and John Kelly, and they had provided entertainment for an event that was held at St. James. And this event went pretty late. It went to like 1 a.m., which is really late for back then because there were no like streetlights. So they were offered to spend the night at St. James, which sounded like a great idea because it was pitch dark and it would be pretty hard to travel back home for them. So they bunkered down in a building that was on the site. Looney was awakened during the middle of the night by the sound of galloping hoofs on the gravel road. He sprung up from bed and ran to the window to see nothing. The noise eventually faded, but Looney didn't go back to sleep. Uh, Instead, he woke up Kelly to tell him all about it. And as they spoke, the sound returned. Both men looked out the window this time. And as the noise faded, there stood a woman, or at least the form of a woman. Then the the sound started up again, and they saw a horse and carriage coming up the the gravel driveway. The woman danced into the shadows, and just like that, the horse and carriage and the woman, they were all gone. Only to start again a short time later. Each time the carriage resurfaced, something new would be added. This time, the woman called out, come on, and then disappeared again. When Looney and Kelly reported the story to the police the next morning, it was verified that there was no drinking by either man the night before. That's my first thought, that they were drunk. Um, But legend has it that the ghost was that of a young parish helper and a housekeeper that were planning to sneak off to elope in the middle of the night. The woman was given instructions to wait part of the way down the hill while he hitched the horse to the carriage. But as he was coming for her, the horses got startled and bolted 
and the wagon overturned, and both of the young lovers were killed. So after hearing this story when I was younger, I started to think that maybe we're not really looking for a Mary on Archer Avenue. Maybe Mary's ghost is much, much older. And that's what okay. I got. Great. That's a great story. <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, definitely believable that they're a Southside couple when one of them's yelling, come on to the other one. Um, <laughs> <very South> <laughs> true, true. That it is. So, so does anyone have anything to add to this little bit of history from Archer Avenue? Uh, just one. Um, actually, two things. Uh, Pat, when you stayed the night at the cemetery, did you come across the monks <laughs> at all? Or do, oh, you know I didn't, the, do you know I the didn't story spend of the monks? The night. Oh, I didn't okay. spend the night. But oh, no, my apologies. Um, no, but I was there in the middle of the night. Okay, did you see the monks? I did not see the monks. Um, he ran. I ran. ran. <laughs> okay. You know, there's lots of police reports about shadowy monk figures in that area. I, I love that story. And they just, they, the cops show up, they track them, they chase them down by foot, and then vanish. Yeah, I think it's the French. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, it's it the ghost be. of Juliet. Yeah. Ursula, then, I was wondering, have, have you heard? Oh, I'm sorry. You have another question. No, no, no. About? Go on. Go on. Oh, I was just going to ask Ursula if you had heard that story before. Of the. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. I have to say, I actually found that story. <laughs> I found oh, really? story oh. deep in the. Uh, I'm so old. <laughs> I found that story buried in the microfilm at the Chicago Public Library in probably 1994 maybe and uh, that was the same thing that struck me too was this woman in white in a cemetery associated with the dance we talked about the dance hall yeah. at Saginaw Hall the, the church hall and it was had been a dance at the parish and uh, she actually uh, I think of the story she floated through the cemetery fence and then disappeared in the cemetery. So you have this woman in white on Archer Avenue associated with a dance, probably at least 25 years, maybe 35 years before Resurrection Mary is sighted. It's yeah, and it's, pretty, pretty it's really cool. hard to figure out who the Mary was that you know was Resurrection Mary. And right. I've looked at a lot of them, and all of them, there's conflicting evidence. It's like, yeah. well, that doesn't meet this criteria and that doesn't meet that criteria. Yeah. So I just, I just think it's fascinating that uh, these things are just a few miles from each other. Yeah. The uh, entire stretch of Archer Avenue, uh, metaphysical people believe that entire Archer Avenue is just one giant ley line, meaning it's just yeah. one centralized energy source. So yeah. it's possible you're going to have lots of stuff going on there. Yeah, I've been I mean, working I've, on I've, a documentary of, on Archer Avenue for the last month. I'm almost done. It's like an hour long. So this oh, is like right up my alley right now. Nice. It's just like I've got Archer Avenue on my brain right now. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I've seen some things on Archer Avenue. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound good. I don't know if I want to know. Yeah. All right. Know. Before we move on, did anybody have anything else on this story? Uh, there was something in the YouTube chat. Uh, somebody, uh, the ex epics mechanic, some mechanic. I don't know. Okay. Uh, he grew up with the story of that place. My grandmother got a photo of a robbed of a robed figure in the upper pews years ago. 
and we caught a few odd EVPs in the church there. Oh, wow. Okay. Cool. Somebody That's, else figured out where we got midway from during that. So. Oh, oh, yeah. that that makes sense. This is right there. Um, real quick before we move on, we did have a message on the Zoom chat as well. Um, Mondo, who uh, has been on Ghostly quite a few <laughs> times and is the the creator of the Waverly Hills theme song, which is maybe my favorite thing from Ghostly <laughs> of all time, uh, was like that was a great ghost story, Pat. Thanks you. Thanks to you, I believe. So oh, there you go. Pat. I bet he's at a ten right now. Yeah, he's probably he's at always 10. at a ten. It was a very yes. good story. All right, we're gonna go ahead and move on to our next story, which is Steve Sorry. This is actually the one that I was looking forward to the most because I have no idea about this, which is uh, Pioneer Zephyr. I love it. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah so um, there's a fun story about this, which I'll I'll get to. But let me give you a little bit of the the background and and history of this train itself. Uh, It was built in 1934 for the CB&Q railroad system. Uh, It was the second internal combustion powered steam liner uh, ever built for a mainline service. Uh, And it was the first that was ever powered by diesel. Uh, In May of May 26th of 1934, it set a speed record for travel between Denver and Chicago. It traveled 1,015.4 miles in 13 hours and five minutes. It was called the Dusk to Dawn Dash, uh, and it averaged a speed of only 78 miles per hour, but it reached a max speed of 112.5 miles per hour during one straightaway. It operated in regular service, Uh, starting November 11th, 1934, between Kansas City, Missouri, Omaha, Nebraska, and Lincoln, Nebraska. It retired in 1960, uh, where it was then donated to the Museum of Science and Industry, where it sat outside until 1994, when it was donated to the Railway Museum in Union, Illinois. And then once... Uh, the Museum of Science and Industry went and did a massive upgrade to their buildings. Uh, they then reclaimed the train, uh, and it's now in their entry lobby uh, by the ticket counter. The car, the train itself consists of only three cars, uh, the power car, the baggage and coach car, and then an observation and coach car. It's a. It's actually. It's a really beautiful all chrome kind of train. Very sleek. Very stylish. So, this kind of leads into my story. So last May, I happened to be at the Museum of Science and Industry for a private function, and while I was there, I was. It was a, an after hours event, and I was talking to a couple of the, uh, the volunteers that worked there. Now, knowing the history of the museum, I asked them about the submarine. I asked them about the hauntings of the submarine, because everybody knows about the, the alleged hauntings of the submarine. And these two girls looked at me, and they're like, yeah, we don't think the submarine's haunted at all. We think those are just stories. We've never, they're like, we've, we've run tours through there. We've been there all the time. We've never had anything happen. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That runs counter to a lot of the things I had heard. 
And they're like, yeah. And then there was this pause and they're like, but the train's haunted. And that caught me off guard completely uh, because that was the last thing I was expecting to hear. And so I was like, okay, well, why, why do you think this train's haunted? And they're like, well, uh, we have to be the last ones in there a lot. We either have to open that train or we have to close that train. And we've had a lot of unusual things happen. So when I pressed them on it, they explained how they had seen shadowy figures moving in the train. They had talked about how they had heard voices on the train when it's just them. Um, and they voices that sound like it's coming from right behind them from their side. And clearly it's an empty train. But what was most intriguing was there's an animatronic cow on that train. And according to them, according to both of them, they have each seen the cow when the power is shut off to the train move on its own. The cow is... They so I asked them about the cow. I was like, "Well, how's it? How's it run? Is it? Is it the? You know, maybe it's an electrical system issue." And they're like, "No, see, it, it, it's a hydraulic cow. Like, so once once it's shut off, there's no way it can move." Um, they're like, "Do you do you want to see the train?" And at this event the train was actually blocked off by curtains because they had a band playing in front of it. And they're like, we'll take you to see the train. And they're like, we like, we're off our shift in like 30 minutes. If you meet us down by the train, we'll take you on it and you can check it out yourself. Okay. So I, I took them up on the offer and a, a bit about myself. Uh, my background is I'm a skeptical believer. So if I'm able to eliminate all other possible potential solutions, then whatever I'm left with is the solution I'm left with. So they take me on this train. And the first thing I do is I check this animatronic cow. And <laughs> the head of this cow has to easily weigh a good 30, 40 pounds. It's not something that's just going to move on vibrations, not something that's just going to raise and turn its head on its own. It's something that physically would need to be powered. Um, that was the first thing that I caught, uh, that I realized. Wandering through the train, they were like, we, they were like, you can just go in there. They refused to come on the train with me. They absolutely refused. Um, so while I'm on this train, uh, there's definitely a, a feeling of unease that you get walking amongst it. Um, it's just an overall feeling of dread, um, which is common at a lot of haunted locations. Um, but walking out of there and talking to them, they're like, yeah, we don't. This is the one haunting that no one knows about here. Everyone knows about, you know. Clarence Darrow, everybody knows about the submarine. Nobody knows about this train because they don't want people knowing that the train's haunted. 
Good job for spoiling it now, Steve. So, yeah, so I, uh, I, I guess I just spoiled it for him, but, uh, you know, whatever it's ratings. So, yeah. but yeah, so that's, that's the story of the train, wow. uh, the haunted wow. Zephyr. That's awesome. Um, the people at the museum of science and history are actually, I've met a few of them. They're like, all of the people I meet from that work there are really cool people. So that's no surprise that they did that for you. Uh, I do wonder if the reason the cow is still moving is it's trying to kick over a lantern or something. Too soon. It, you're, you're absolutely right. Like the volunteers there are, are some of the coolest people uh, that you'll ever meet. And, you know, they were, they were super honest and they were like, yeah, we just need to, we just need to finish our shift, and if you want to go check it out, you can check it out. That's that's great. We um we actually have a question from um, on the Zoom chat uh, that has to do with this, and it was actually a question I was wondering because um I know most most of these stories uh, we kind of know the reason why people think they're haunted, like with the, the background story behind it, uh, and we don't. I don't you I don't know if you know that or not, but like Rachel asked, are there any known deaths associated with the train? Because you know, just kind of thinking of the reason it'd be haunted. Yeah. Um, in in doing research on it on my own, I couldn't find any known deaths related to it. The only thing I could possibly think of is the fact that there was a lot of physical and emotional energy exerted on that train. Uh, and, I mean, when it set that record, it, it was such a milestone in transportation. It was a very a high energy event. Um, so exerted energy could possibly be a cause there. Um, and then, you know, you, you never know what, you know, who the people were that were riding the train on its regular routes from the thirties until the, until the sixties. So, uh, that would be my best guess to, as to a possible cause, but. Is it possible that, a some, like something could have kind of moved into it? when it got to the museum like I had, you guys are more the ghost hunter people i don't know if that's possible it's i mean it's it's possible but i mean it seems un, it would be unusual okay. for something like that to mm-hmm. occur okay um, Patrick uh, asked in the chat um, if it's the cow a is. Question. Oh, it just said you. So I'm <laughs> I, mean, know, I, you I, were I, I was like, really? <laughs> I stopped putting the YouTube part. Okay, so the YouTube question was: Is the cow still there at the museum? Back in those days, people were really into their jobs. A prestigious train like that would definitely have people that would have put their heart and soul into it. That uh, the now, when I was there in May, the cow was in the train. Uh, I know that it went under refurbishment that it was supposed to reopen this summer. And I don't know what kind of refurb they did to the interior um, and what, what's still there and what's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a very good chance that when it opens that, that, that may be gone. Uh, but as of the time it closed, that, that cow was still there. Okay. Is Steve. Yes, Bob. Um, out of curiosity, from your experience there, if it's haunted, do you suppose that it would be a residual haunting then? That would be my... Okay, so here's here's the weird kind of duality to it, is there's trademark hallmarks of it that, that could be residual, the, the shadows and, and the 
the voices and the laughter and, and things like that that are heard on the train. However, a residual haunt wouldn't cause the cow to move because that's an interaction with a current physical environmental change from something that wasn't there at the time it was originally around. Right. We so, have uh, we had another question that was kind of similar to Rebecca's of the idea of maybe the, the ghost came in, but they asked if you think the ghost was already there. So I'm thinking they mean already in the museum and then kind of was like, hey, look, there's a cool shiny train. I'm going to hang out in this. It's, you know, anything's possible. Uh, you, you, I mean, you guys kind of know how it is with the world of, of the paranormal. You can't, you can't rule anything out completely. Right. Uh, but. Oh, I mean, I can, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, you can. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, oh, I mean, microclimates, Pat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just Sounds one like giant microclimate. We do have another question real quick, and then uh, we're going to take this question, and then if anybody has anything else to say about it, uh, we'll get that in, and then we'll move on. Uh, So this last question is, um, have you talked to anyone at the Union Illinois Railroad Museum uh, to see if there are any stories while it was there? Which is a great question. uh, I have not, and and uh, that may be something to do down the line. Uh, I've never been too focused on investigating the train because mm-hmm. the museum wouldn't allow a full investigation. Um, so uh, it would, it would all be having to track down a lot of people and try and see who's still at the union museum that was there. And in, in 1994 at, at the latest uh, and trying to figure that out that way. Okay. Did anybody else have anything they wanted to get in about the, the pioneers effort? No. Okay, so we're going to move on. Um, I will say that uh, I wonder if this was the inspiration for the movie Silver Streak. Uh, it was. It oh, was. There you go. See? Uh, there you go. Maybe it's the ghost of Richard Pryor um, <laughs> or Gene Wilder. Either one. Um, so we're going to move on to our next story. Um, our next story is going to be uh, from Bob, and he's going to tell a story about a place that he has probably spent a lot of time in, which is <laughs> the Crown Point Prison. A Crown Point jail. The Crown Point right. prison actually exists as a functioning correctional facility. <laughs> Which Bob oh, has also visited. I'm I have sure. not, actually. I've driven past it. So I was going back and forth about what I wanted to do for my portion. And I knew everybody was going to pick really cool like Chicago locations, but I think a suburb of Chicago itself is Northwest Indiana, which is where I grew up. And I wanted to show my strange Indiana pride. And I wanted to talk about a place near and dear to my heart, which is the Crown Point Jail. Um, I was inspired by it 100%. I recently watched an old documentary with Richard Crow, where he was going around to different haunted locations all around the greater Chicagoland area. And he stopped at that jail and he's mentioned in the documentary that's one of his favorites. And then I got a chance to investigate it with Steve um, back in, what was it, Steve, October? It was, it was October. Yeah, we got, to go place, inv- we got to investigate it and I just fell in love with the spot. So... The jail was built in 1882, and it was a very small, I'm kind of 
a transition period between I'm getting arrested, I'm going there, and then they're going to transport me out. But unfortunately, as time progressed, the jail became overpopulated, and they turned it more into a long-term population um, facility. In 1910, they decided to build different uh, add-ons and additions to the uh, jail itself, including some sheriff quarters where he can go and sleep during the night and his family can stay. uh, During that time, they had the men's quarters, the women's quarters, and what was even more interesting is they had a juvenile quarter quarters as well. So one building would house juvenile hall, the women's, I don't want to say prison because it's more jail, but men's, women's and the uh, juvenile. And it was just juvenile males. They didn't, I don't think they mixed the juvenile girls and the boys together there. Now, during the time that this uh, prison jail was in function, it got up to about the year 1974 and they decided to stop because they were going to build the bigger uh, Lake County jail which was down the street now the prison in crown point and in 1989 the jail and the sheriff's home attached became historical landmarks that you can go and tour now and i'll plug that a little bit later now throughout the time period that the jail stood they had a lot of people kind of come and go from there and there was a lot of energy hanging out but the jail actually had one very famous person that had a very brief stint there. I don't know how many of you guys ever heard of John Dillinger. Dillinger who? Uh, I'm going to touch really briefly on John Dillinger because I uh, ghostly podcast did an episode on Dillinger and the potential ghost of Dillinger. And I highly recommend everybody that's listening and watching now to go check out the Dillinger episode of ghostly because they nailed it on the head. So I'm just going to be very brief about it. John Dillinger. Oh, of course. John Dillinger was a famous bank robber who targeted a lot of banks in and around of the greater Chicagoland area. And he particularly liked to pick on Northwest Indiana specifically. John Dillinger's first real robbing was in East Chicago, Indiana. And throughout the time, he kept escaping the law. John Dillinger was uncatchable until finally a tip-off led to a police chase and eventually catching of him in Arizona, where he famously yeah, uh, Johnny Depp made the line in the movie uh, about why would I have to go back to Indiana and serve out my time, but he totally did. And Dillinger ended up at the famous Lake, uh, Crown Point Jail. And politicians were so excited to have Dillinger there. They were, you know, spouting he's not going anywhere. And they used to bill the Crown Point Jail as the Alcatraz of the Midwest. It was unpenetrable, unescapable. But guess what? On March 3rd, 1934, John Dillinger escaped from the Lake County Jail and disappeared for several months leading up until July, where a tip-off and bargaining of somebody else that was going to get arrested, John Dillinger was shot and killed by police. Now, my question is, and this is what seems to be the most famous question about the Crown Point Jail, is... Is it haunted? And if it's haunted, is it Johnny D himself? And I wanted that to kind of open it up to everybody to chat about is if John Dillinger haunts it, why would he haunt it? Because he was only there for a brief stint. And do you think that there's probably a lot of energy going around there, both men, women, and juvenile? I will tell you from my experience being there with Steve back in October, we actually had several things go on there that was really weird. Steve got a punched in the face 
by what he believes was a very angry spirit because Steve was in his cell. That was during the men's quarters. If I, I have my notes correctly. I, I, uh, I, I wasn't punched. Uh, I was, it was, it was more an emotional sure. uh, and physical Punch. illness. We did have the young girls cause we went, we, there were two tours that night. There was the local, um, there's a local paranormal historian, uh, 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 last name, uh, geez, I, completely blanked on that don bernacki don bernacki he's a local paranormal historian and he teaches history at the local crown point high school and he took his kids there his students there on a paranormal investigation for a part of schoolwork which i thought was really cool and so we got to before we did our private tour we got to follow the high schoolers we kind of hung back and kind of just followed them as they went through we experienced a young girl get scratched on her calf in the men's section of the prison in their common area which is actually where public enemy was shot and then during oh i like that band no, the movie with Johnny Depp. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I like the band, too. <laughs> and in the women's prison, when the kids would go into the common area in the women's prison, a lot of the equipment we had would start going off and start acting a little strange. So I wanted to actually kind of involve everybody with my topic, and I wanted to see what everybody kind of thought about it, especially with the John Dillinger haunting, and is it possible that the kids there were causing reaction in the women's part of it specifically? Because when we went by ourselves, we didn't have a whole lot of experience. So, so I just so, wanted to open it up. So, so let me straight. That, uh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I wanted to to follow up on, on what Bob was saying um, and and to, to put some perspective on what I experienced. Uh, we were in the, um, solitary, confinement, the right? solitary confinement section uh, where there were about six different solitary confinement cells in a row. I was in one. I went in one with my equipment, just started talking. Because uh, a lot of times, if, if you start talking, you got a recorder going, you never know what's going to happen. Um, there were, this was during the high, while all the high school students were there as well. While I'm in there, I feel dizzy and I feel nauseous. I have never been sensitive to emf fields uh i have never i've been doing investigations for 15 years um i have never once gotten sick gotten um lightheaded anything while on an investigation this was just a wave of just dread and i knew i had to get out as soon as i walk out of the cell to tell bob uh from the far end, a girl comes out of her cell and is freaking out because she experienced the same exact thing I was experiencing in my cell. She was like, I, I can't stand there. She's like, I, I feel like I'm going to faint and I feel like I'm going to throw up. This was easily a good 12, 15 feet apart. No contact. I hadn't said anything out loud to anyone for them to hear but at the same exact moment we both were feeling and experienced the same exact thing um which it, it's it's not a anything that you could 
tangible evidence, but it is a personal experience uh, that was corroborated with someone else at the same time. Yeah. And then Ursula, I know you were going to say something. Yeah, I love the Crown Point Jail. I think it's very active. I don't think it's Dillinger. No. I do think there's, yeah, I think there's several, at least two very angry male entities there. I was physically touched there twice. I've been there maybe five times, I would say, over the years. One time I felt very very hard hand around my throat. Mm. And then another time I was basically felt up. I felt a oh, no. uh, uh, hand. I felt the arm over my right shoulder and a hand on my right breast. Oh, no. And it was, uh, it was both of them happened in the solitary confinement area where I felt also just incredible that incredible uh like it's almost like a like a fight or flight feeling yes like where i had yes. to get out yes the yeah, other when you said that i was like yep i felt that there i i have never all the years i've i've done investigations i've done them in some really charged buildings uh i have never experienced that feeling like i had in that location this was at night that you guys were there, right? Yes. Yeah. We, it okay, because I, I was there during the day, and I felt absolutely nothing. Of course you were there during the day, Patrick. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the solitary confinement. The other, um, the other experience I wanted to touch on was when Steve and I were doing a EVP reading up in the juvenile hall, and Steve's, Steve was sitting there with his tennis ball. He's like, I bet you can't move this tennis ball. And he was trying to get something to move this tennis ball across the table and i was like you know what steve they can't move anything in this room and we just heard they still have them there these giant steel bunk beds i forgot about this yeah and when i'm like think you know what steve forget it quit asking him to move the tennis ball they can't move anything in this room and steve and i and the other guy with us anthony and don was with us everybody was with us we heard this the, these giant real heavy steel bunk beds we heard it go and i'm like i'm proved wrong yeah. sorry guys <laughs> yeah it was and it was the the thing about it is it, it definitely was the sound of of a bed moving uh, and it was the opposite side of the room from where any of us were. Um, and it was right after I was like, come on, just move, just move the tennis ball. And then I was like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll push a little bit harder on this and be like, yeah, I don't think you can move it. I don't think you could do this at all. And then Bob was like, yeah, you're right. I don't, I don't think they can move anything. And then there was, then we just heard the, the the metal scrape across the concrete <laughs> floor uh, uh yeah that was that was something we uh there were two more things one was the uh playing poker with the ghosts that was with panic when he yeah. was um my producer tony panic out panic he was sitting down in the women's common area and don laid out some cigarettes and he said hey uh tony sit down and play a game with them and panic's like well, what do you want me to do so Don laid out playing cards. He laid out three cards, two cards. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was playing high card. And Don's like, look at your card, play with them. And he had an EMF reader and panic's like, Oh, I'll play. I'm going to, you know, I guess. 
And Don's like, ladies, whoever's sitting down with us at the hand, if you can interact with the EMF reader to go off, let us know if you want us to play the hand or not. And he's, Don said, let it go off. And it spiked up, boom, red, if they wanted to play. Panic flips over his card, and Don flips over their cards, and then the uh, the ladies beat Panic, and he ended up giving them some cigarettes as a, uh, as a uh, token of his appreciation of playing. I still don't know why we didn't use Panic as more bait. When we go back, we were there really late because we followed that high school one, but when we go back, we'll use Panic as bait. Yeah, put some marshmallows on him or something. Um, I just... <laughs> Oh, go on. No, no, no. Oh, I was just going to, oh, you just, we did the episode on it. I would, I, again, I haven't been there myself, but this was one that I definitely, based on the research, I did not think it was Dillinger, but the stories were so much more real. You know, a lot of times when you do research, you know, it's just kind of like, well, people say that they've experienced this or whatever, but there's not a lot of specifics. And I think you guys are evidence of that. Like that's when you, mm. when you research it, you just hear, there's so many stories that people have had, um, had there. And I, it, it's, it's amazing that of six people, three ha- in <laughs> here have had um, physical, really extreme experiences at this place. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob, I'm, I'm going to let you wrap it up real quick. Uh, so yeah, you said one more thing. Yep. Yeah, I just really wanted yeah. to point this out. The, when all this is over and we're able to kind of go back out into the world a little bit, the Crown Point Historical Society does do tours there. They that was going to be my question. Yes. The Crown Point, <laughs> the Crown Point Historical Society, and I'm going to plug them real quick because I can, and I'm a panelist here. They, you donate a little bit of money to the Historical Society and they let you do, they'll do a guided tour for, if you want to go for historical sense, which I highly recommend if you're not into the paranormal to at least go see it because they know the exact cell that John Dillinger was in when he did his escape. So they were able to, you can go there and see the cell and for paranormal folk, they let you just go. So for a donation, I think it's like 50 or 75 bucks. You can get your team together wherever equipment you want, you could set up there all night and they do a lot of good charity work for the area and they're doing really good stuff. So if you're looking for something paranormal to do in Northwest Indiana, I do recommend checking out the Crown Point jail. And, and if, if you're a movie buff, the, the floor where they filmed, uh, that, that Johnny Depp movie, public uh, Enemy. yeah. Public enemy is still in, pretty much the same shape as it was during filming wow so. that's that's cool all right we're going to move on we have one more story to go um last but not least um this is a, st- a story uh that rebecca is going to be telling about one of the most historically significant uh tragedies in the, in the history of the city of chicago um even if you don't know uh, the story about the haunting behind it a lot of people have heard this story um it is um what Bob so eloquently calls the Easter Island Massacre. <laughs> You're never going to let me live that one down, are you? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Oh, jeez. What, oh, jeez? Uh, well, I... Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. Nick, you have to finish your introduction. Oh, that, that was going to be it. I was going to leave it on Bob. Oh, being okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Well, I, you know, I, I'm sorry that I'm going last. It's kind of a, it's a downer of a story, but the ghost part is, is, 
<laughs> will be interesting, hopefully a little more. All of these are downers of stories, if you think of it. They're all involving dead know. people. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, Nick, as you said, this, so this is the story of the Eastland disaster, not the Easter Island massacre, <laughs> the Eastland disaster. Um, but it is, a, it is really significant, and yet something that I think a lot of Chicagoans don't know about I, I, for some reason. You know, you maybe we learn about it in school, but somehow we forget about it, and uh, it's it's pretty significant, and it's it's amazing that it, it happened, and 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 it's not a, always as widely known. Um, so there's a lot to the story, um, but I know we've got limited time, and I, I you know, so I'm just going to keep it to the basics. Um, but I would recommend anybody um, to look for for Eastland Disaster Online. There's a great collection of photos, uh, well like plates, photos that uh, the Tribune found in their um, vaults, like down when they were moving, um, that uh, really show kind of the devastation of the disaster. And it's it's really interesting angles. And then I believe there was a video um, of it, actually, that had has been found. So um, so definitely go check that out for, for more. Um, but the story, basically, is that on July 24th, 1915, the SS Eastland, also known as the Speed Queen of the Great Lakes, was the first of five boats scheduled to take Western Electric employees and their families on an excursion across Lake Michigan to Michigan Cindy, City, Indiana, uh, for a picnic fun day with their families, which was something that most... Uh, people at that time, you know, to have a whole day off and get to go somewhere else and, and have fun was, uh, was super special and not something um, that uh, was common. So the boat was docked at the Clark Street Bridge, uh, but it never actually left. Um, the ship rolled over capsized in the river before it even left. Uh, more than 2,500 passengers and crew members were aboard. 844 people lost their lives, including 22 families, and 70%, um, uh, I read, were under the age of 25. It was a, it was a big number. Um, why? Well, we don't ever know for sure, sure what happened. There was a lot of litigation over a lot of years. We can be pretty sure of what caused this to happen. Um, it was considered very top heavy um, because they had had to add a lot of lifeboats um, onto the ship because this was not too long after the Titanic. Um, and it wasn't really necessarily built to have all of those on there. Um, and it was also the first boat that was scheduled to leave. So as I mentioned, this was a really exciting thing to be able to go on this trip and, and go away for a day. Um, so people were really excited to go. So it really filled up um, with passengers right away and really exceeded its capacity, especially with all of those lifeboats on it. Um, so adding to that, when the boat was about to leave, everybody kind of rushed to the street side because they wanted to, to wave goodbye to everybody out there. Um, and right before, um, well, like about a half hour before we was supposed to leave, 7.28 um, a.m., the Eastland lurched sharply to port and then rolled completely onto its port side coming to rest on the river bottom which was really only 20 feet below the surface but it just was enough people were trapped um in that they just couldn't get out um and in addition to drowning actually a lot of um of people were crushed by furniture that wasn't bolted down um so here's where things start to get 
we sort of gets into the ghosty stuff a little bit. Um, there were too many bodies to take to kind of the regular morgue. So they had to start making uh, makeshift morgues around downtown. Uh, and the largest one um, was definitely the armory of the second regiment. And we know this spot because eventually it became Harpo Studios, Oprah, right, where she had the Oprah Winfrey talk show. And now it is also the site of the McDonald's headquarters. None of these are the same buildings, but it's the same spot. Um, so we can imagine that such a tragedy led to a lot of paranormal activity. Um, so there's a few stories that are out there. Uh, and so I'm, I'm curious to find out from panelists uh if anyone has uh has experienced anything or knows any other stories or things out there um but the first is that you can uh, people will walk by there's a plaque right there you can see it on, on clark there by the river um and some visitors will say that they hear sounds of loud splashing and screams uh, but when they look there's nothing um, there's Riverside cafes around there as well. And so people will say they, they see, um, unexplicable like surges of water coming onto the river walk. Um, another extreme example that I read is people walking along, they kind of see something in the water, but when they look, it's like a lifeless face kind of looking back at them. And then the most famous probably is, I mentioned the Armory and then Harpo Studios um, is actually a lot of paranormal activity happening there. Um, there's all sorts of staff members, you know, security guards, people there that claim to have seen paranormal activity. Um, so they, the most common ghost that they see is a woman in a long gray dress, not a woman in white. Oh, Sorry. not a woman in white. Good. Sorry to disappoint. Great. Close enough. <laughs> we get close. Uh, uh, but um, we've noticed, Ursula, that many of these stories have women in white. So <laughs> that's just become kind of a common theme. Uh, but, anyways, but if you try to approach her, she disappears. Um, they claim to hear whispers, sobbing, moaning, children, phantom footsteps, doors locking, unlocking by themselves, um, just all sorts of paranormal activity. And I find it really weird because I guess Oprah would talk about it when like she was there there was like a time period where she kind of did talk about it but then now she won't talk about it anymore so i don't know it's a little it's a little suspicious um and then i just wanted to mention one other thing real quick which is that oftentimes people uh believe that excalibur which i don't even know what it is anymore if I'm, i assume the building they in a chinese restaurant now chinese restaurant now okay <laughs> i was wondering if anyone knew um but anyways they claim that that's um haunted with ghosts from the eastland but um i don't think there's any record of bodies being taken to um, what was then the Chicago Historical Society. So it's, I have heard, I have been to Excalibur. That is haunted. That is one place that I have been and have experienced things. Um, it was haunted by the beat there. Uh, but <laughs> I think Pat, I think you just made Pat very upset when you're like, it's haunted. And it's Pat's haunted. just like, uh. no. <laughs> but not by ghosts from the Eastland. So I just, I, I always think that's important to mention for that one. Um, but yeah, so I, what do you guys think about that? Any experiences? Any, what did I miss? I have to say, uh, for the 100th anniversary, a colleague of mine, Michael Esposito, who's an experimental musician who specializes in using EVP in his composition, Ooh, okay. we had a con we put on a concert, experimental music concert at Bohemian National Cemetery, 
in the uh, crematorium there where a lot a lot of the Eastland victims are buried at Bohemian National. Mm -hmm. And so in order to create this concert, we collected EVP from the old Hawthorne works where most of the victims worked in Cicero uh, at the Western Electric plant. Mm -hmm. We went to St. Mary Chesterhoa Church where most of the funerals were held. We used underwater microphones at the site of the disaster. And with the under, underwater microphones there, we collected EVPs, several EVPs that said, everyone's dying, you must help them, everyone is drowning. And then at Harpo Studios, we used contact microphones on the walls outside. Of course, we couldn't get in and they actually called the cops and made us leave. <laughs> we, we're able to record for a few minutes with contact microphones and picked up what sounded like moaning and crying in the walls of the building. And this was a hundred years later. Wow. So yeah, it's crazy. Friend I mean, it was just fast yeah. and traumatic and you know what yeah. I mean? Like just yeah. everything. Yeah. Right. A friend of mine, Marion Cheatham, she wrote a young adult book based on the Eastland, a fictional kind of uh, historical fiction. And she was inspired to do that because she had visited the site and she heard screaming of children, she said, coming from the water at the site, which inspired her to write the book, to start doing her research and, and becoming you know, obsessed with the story. Wow. I did a wow. quick... Google search during um, just a little bit ago to see if Oprah Winfrey herself ever seen any ghosts at her studio. And believe it or not, she has actually a report of her actually seeing spirits at Harpo studios. Yes, but you like can't find that anymore. Like it's really, it's very like, yeah. I know she did like a full episode yeah. of her show in like, the late 80s, I want to say. It was like 1986, I think. Yeah. Yeah, all about it. Yeah. And then, but you like can't find it anymore. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I'm oh. sure somebody has it. I mean, it's, it's the yeah. age of the internet, but you know, yeah. It's was definitely it? on YouTube. I just found it. Yeah. Wasn't <laughs> Papa Bear Hell is supposed to be there? Wasn't Papa Bear Hell is supposed to be there? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was supposed to be there, but he was in training. And his dad made him come back in the house and weigh himself before he left <laughs> to oh go on the picnic. My. So he was waiting in line to get on the Eastland when it rolled over. Wow. Oh, no. Oh, there there would have been no bears. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. seriously. It's insane. Like, it's crazy. That's that, you, they talk about like idiosyncrasies, yeah. right? Where it's just like the one thing led to another. And it's yeah. like, if that didn't happen, he would have been on the on it that's yeah. nuts that's wild i think that's probably where we're going to leave that story uh just because i want to give us a little bit of time to get some questions and answers uh, in from our listeners sure. um real quick it's interesting I, I an observation like that that happened at clark at the clark street bridge because clark and the river um actually has ties to another great chicago story um at least if i remember correctly which is um the story of captain santa um oh, yeah. yes. who he didn't die there. He died in, in Wisconsin yeah. uh, on the lake, but he used to sell his trees at the, the Clark Street dock right there on the river too. So. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Christmas story, ghost Christmas story things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of an amazing coincidence or not, depending on what you, what you think about that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and move into some questions. We had a couple questions early on that um, I promised we'd get to. So the first one was um, 
uh, was from a YouTube uh, viewer who said, when I was a kid, not more than 10 years years or so, my mom took me uh, on a Chicago ghost tour led by Richard Crow. What has Richard Crow's legacy been on the Chicago paranormal investigation community? He's, he's the man. He will always be the man. Always. He's, he's the one who, I mean, he laid the framework for Chicago ghost lore. There wasn't any before him. You know, he introduced the story of Resurrection Mary. He introduced the story of John Dillinger. Uh, he introduced the story of uh, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre ghosts. So it all started with him. And he will, al- he will always be the man. <laughs> Did you work with him ever? No, I don't, he I don't know the time me. frame. I'm he sorry. Always thought I was, <laughs> he always thought I was stepping in his turf. Even after 20 years, he thought I was. <laughs> oh. just, yeah. Just a punk kid. <laughs> you know, he um, his work is still being quoted to this day as well. I was listening to Astonishing Legends, which is another paranormal-esque podcast. And on the Resurrection Mary episode of their show, which is a very long one, which I recommend you guys check out. But anyway, they showed like they played clips of Richard Crow on WGN radio. And it's been many, many years. So the fact that even modern day people are referencing that it's, it goes to show it's us. It's amazing. Like, so, like Bachelor's Grove, for example, when I was researching my Bachelor's Grove book that came out two years ago, um, I, I tried to find the origins of many of the popular stories at Bachelor's Grove. For example, the idea that the woman in white at Bachelor's Grove was called the Madonna of Bachelor's Grove. That comes from an episode that Richard Crow did on WGN where a woman called in and she said she saw this woman in white at Bachelors Grove that looked like a Madonna with a covering over her head. And that was just one example. I mean, there were like 10 things that people talk about at Bachelors Grove where the descriptions and the names that are, that they're called, that these different phenomena are called at different places have their origins in shows that Richard Crow was on on WGN. Yeah. Ursula, what would you say is one of the most haunted places in Chicago? Would you say Batchers Grove is? is Oh, without a doubt. Absolutely. Okay. Steve, I think you had something to say. Or Steve. Yeah. I was just going to say a a quick little anecdote. Um, When I was in high school, I took a class on Chicago history and we had to do a, a video project on any aspect of Chicago history we wanted. And I did mine on Chicago ghosts. And I wrote him a letter and he was like, I'm doing a, a book talk at this library. If you want, we can do an interview. And he sat down with me wow. for an hour wow. and a half oh my gosh. Uh, on, on audio. We, we, he let me ask him whatever I wanted. I was, 15, 16 years old, asked him about every single story I, I could think of. Uh, and then after it was done, he was like, look, I've got a, I've got a tour. Uh, you, if you want to come on, you can be my guest. Uh, you and your family can be my guest on the tour. That's... And we'll talk more after that. Wow. Um, and so that's, that's my personal uh, connection and recollection of him was, was that, was that moment where he was, you know, to to some teenager in high school, he was he was willing to to give an hour and a half of his time that he he really didn't have to give. Man, you wow. still have that audio, Steve? 
Uh, it's yeah. yeah, it's probably someplace. Oh man, I'd totally hear find that. that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you guys know this. Richard Crow is actually supposed to haunt the Ashbury Coffee House on Archer Avenue. Oh really? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's cool. Because he used to bring the tours in there all the time. Right. right. The owner said whenever they'd come in, he'd come in first and he'd come in real fast and he'd go through the coffee house and up the stairs and he'd use the bathroom on the second floor and then come back down and talk about the coffee house to the, the tour guests. And he'd sweep, he'd like rush through the cafe and he'd say, I'm going to the head, I'm going to the head. And he'd go up the stairs. <laughs> and she said, since he, after he died, there were numerous occasions where they saw this big imposing figure rush through the coffee house and say, I'm going to the head and go upstairs. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you got to use it. All right. We have another question. Um, This one is also from a YouTube uh, viewer. Um, The question is, if ghosts are dead, how do they manage to have breath to be able to form words? Breathing is a biological function, something that stops when you die. Nick, did you write that comment? No, because (laughs) I I know that I would be probably ridiculed by you guys if I did. (laughs) That came from a skeptic, by the way. So. That's fine. I, I figured. Yeah. Skeptics, welcome. Well, I I have to say, I think that uh, ghosts use the vibrations that are left in the environment after we speak. I found when I I find when I record EVP, I get the best best EVPs when other people are having conversations in the background, and then the the whatever ghostly conversations, whatever, huh. seem to appear. Ding ding ding. ding. Underneath, <laughs> kind of underneath the human conversations. So I think there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of energy and kind of like sound vibrations that are left in the environment for a while after we speak. And I think that's what they use. I'm 100% with Ursula on this one. I don't want to say it's a necessarily physical. I'm moving my mouth and words are coming out of my own you know, of my own making, I feel like they're using energy that we're giving off, which is my whole theory on how ghosts exist in general. I really think that Ursula's right on the money with that one. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that as well. My theory was a lot of times ghosts present uh, at, in their, in their um, prime, in their best, um, you know, like what they looked like in their best day. Or in their worst day, the day that they died. So a lot of them uh, could still have the ability to vibration speak. Mm-hmm. But that's coming from skeptic light. So did, well, did, sure. you just, did you just defend paranormal there? Pat? I don't know. That's really weird. Honestly, I don't know what's today. Pat, I, I don't completely disagree with you. I think I don't believe ghosts exist. I'm the hardcore skeptic here, but if you do think that ghosts exist there, you know, you also believe that um, as you can see from some of the evidence that people bring about from ghosts, they don't always follow the, the normal physical rules of physics. And so, I mean, you can't use that as an argument like in that sense um, because you, you know, you're already breaking some of the physical rules of physics talking about ghosts, talking about, you know, shaking a, you know, an intangible thing, shaking a, a, a bunk bed, you know, um, so that's kind of a weird thing um, to ask. It's an interesting question, though. Um, Pat, did we have any more questions from the YouTube? No, we don't. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so what I'd like to do is uh, we're actually just right around the time we were supposed to wrap it up anyway. So if we don't have any other questions, what I'd like to do is kind of give each of you a chance to kind of 
wrap it up, maybe, you know, plug whatever you'd like to plug, uh, give people an opportunity to uh, contact you outside of the panel if they have questions of their own that they just didn't feel like asking during the panel. So we'll start, uh, we'll start with Ursula. Thank you so much. I, it was great to be on the show. Um, our website is chicagohauntings.com. Of course, we're, the tours are closed down right now, but my blog is there. And I also have a YouTube channel, Chicago Hauntings TV. And the documentary about Archer Avenue should be up on the YouTube channel uh, probably by next Wednesday or so. Oh, and I can't wait. Yeah, also, that's we're also doing a ton of live lectures and we're doing live ghost hunts from Lincoln Park. So go to our Facebook page, website, and you'll see everything that we're doing in this interim until we can open back up again. And then the summer comes out, uh, our next book, Haunted Juliet Prison, which is written by myself and our whole Juliet Hauntings team that investigated the prison for nine weeks back in 2018. So it's all of our harrowing experiences and then interviews with inmates and guards who lived there over many years and had a lot of different experiences. And then a lot of just general history of the prison and history and backgrounds of a lot of the famous inmates with the prison as well. That's in July. Awesome. Uh, Steve. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Uh, where was that? At Chicago Bear. At Chicago Bear. Um, you know, uh, feel free to send me a message there. Um, if, uh, if you're a wrestling fan uh, and you like merch, I got I got merch. <laughs> uh, I got uh, nice. that's my Chi Town beatdown shirt. I also got a, a a shirt with my logo on it. That's at prowrestlingtees.com slash Chicago Bear Hug. I keep things really simple. Thing uh, <laughs> there, um, you can catch me uh, every Friday night uh, at twelve Eastern, eleven Central. Uh, on the channel U2 America, OVW Wrestling. Uh, unfortunately, everything's on a hiatus, so we're we're doing a bunch of uh, like best of shows. Um, but yeah, uh, follow me and and see where I'm at and say hi sometime. Awesome, Patrick. Oh my God! So we have a lot of stuff going on at Ghostly. We did a sleep paralysis episode, which. Uh, scared me so bad that I had to change my underwear. Um, just saying, uh, it was it was pretty bad. Um, but our next episode is actually our first listener's choice episode that we are really excited about. It is the Von Eric family curse. It's uh, all about WWE wrestling or WWF back in the day and WCCW wrestling. Um, it's it's an amazing story. I can't wait to talk about it. Um, and in fact, um, we have asked Bob to join us on that. So it'll be coming out on Wednesday. Uh, also, uh, me and Rebecca were just in Freak of the Week, actually. And I hear you have something to do with that, Nick. Uh, yeah, I'm the producer of that show. Thanks not for at all the host. Me. You sound a lot like that David host. Hickney guy. You sound uh, a lot like him. Totally not me. Um, so let's segue over to Bob. 
Um, I host Bob After Dark. You guys can find that wherever you listen to podcasts at. My newest episode is my first real part in a series. It's I'm doing three episodes on gateways or portals to hell. My first one came out last week. That was about um, five Cleveland? locations. No, <laughs> Kansas, actually. Um, five, loca- five locations in the United States that are considered gateways or portals to hell. My new episode comes came out today. That's on inter- five or uh, three international places that we, you would consider gateways to hell. And then next week, I'm going to be doing a final finishing up the series about the um, Hellier Gates in Pennsylvania. Um, so hey, I was show- on that first that first game yes you were pat's been my frequent co-host lately (laughs) since um steve's busy body slamming people that in my (laughs) not anymore i'm doing nothing bob i know (laughs) my my show is typically a radio show bob after dark is a radio show first before it becomes a podcast but because the radio station is shut down due to the unfortunate world we're living in right now i'm still doing the show though from home and i before we segue over to rebecca i just want to say thank you guys so much for having me here and i just want to say that i'm honored to be on this panel with every single one of you and unfortunately the world's kind of crumbling around us but it's really nice that we all could get together from far apart to be able to host something great so thank every one of you you guys are fantastic wow and then you know you just assumed that i was going to rebecca next well i I mean i am so that's fine (laughs) (laughs) yeah no um so yeah, I'm a ghostly. So ghostly podcasts We're we're everywhere. You know, all your social medias uh, are out there. And on Facebook, there's actually a ghostly society, which is our group. Uh, we have a lot of fun. People share a lot of stories. We debate a lot of stuff because that's what ghostly is. We debate ghost stories. So uh, Pat tells all the history and I tell the ghosty stuff and then he tries to tell me that I'm wrong and I'm like, no, I'm not wrong. And then the <laughs> listeners get to vote. So uh, it's, you know, it's super fun. Um, but during our time of COVID and, and staying home and, and um, not being able to go out, uh, I've added a new thing, which is Rebecca's ghostly bedtime story, creepy bedtime stories. We should call it ghostly bedtime stories. Anyways, but the <laughs> creepy bedtime stories. <laughs> and uh, I, I read a lot of really old, really creepy stuff uh that is it sometimes has some words that are hard to pronounce but it's uh it's <laughs> um, no i like them because they're slow burn you know like they'll start out like they'll add a little bit of creepy and then at the end you're like whoa and there's like this really cool twist and uh and i really like it so um uh anyway so that's been my my fun and then uh let's talk about wrestling excited <laughs> <laughs> So oh man thank oh, you so much what i just <laughs> wanted to thank ursula for yes. Um, yes. coming on oh, this. thank this you is... so much for having me this has been just great thank yeah. you awesome yes and fun. uh just Nikki, so you guys we want you to tell talk about yourself oh, okay i was Don't just gonna leave. very yeah. very briefly just you know mention as Pat already did um, that. I'm the producer of Freak of the Week, uh, which is a great parody paranormal call-in podcast, uh, completely improvised. Um, Pat and Rebecca are regulars on there. Please download it, check it out. It is a fun, fun show. You don't have to be a believer or a skeptic to enjoy it. It's just a good time. Um, it's part of a Morium development, which um, makes a lot of great shows. Uh, they put out a lot of podcasts, including Bob After Dark. Um, 
That's how I got in here through nepotism. Um, no, um, <laughs> but uh, just check out memoriumdevelopment.com or check out our Facebook page, Memoriam Development, or Freak of the Week's Facebook page. Uh, I'd be greatly appreciated. Um, but I just want to thank all of these great panelists, even Patrick. Um, <laughs> and more, more importantly, mm-hmm. I want to thank all the people that viewed this live and all the people that are going to view it afterwards. I'm guessing it's going to be put up as a video afterwards as it well. It will, yes. Absolutely. So um, thank you so much for joining us for this 90 plus minutes of Ghost stories um have a great spooky evening bye hey, ghostly as above so below stay fresh bye. cheese bags